Just I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we're there in Luke chapter number 14. And of course, we've been on a journey with the Lord Jesus Christ, this series called Journey with Jesus. And we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Gospel of Luke. And uh, to, uh, this morning, we are here in Luke chapter 14. And in verse 25, we'll be finishing the chapter this morning, verses 25 through 35. And I want you to notice that in this passage of Scripture, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks on the subject of discipleship. In Luke 14 and verse 25, the Bible says, And there went, the Bible says, And there went great multitudes with him. The him there, of course, is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he turned and said unto them. I want you to notice that Jesus, at this time in his ministry, is being followed by great multitudes. A big crowd is uh, following him. And the Bible tells us that he turned. The idea is that Jesus is on a journey. He's, as we've noticed, on his way to Jerusalem, of course, to die on the cross for our sins. And these multitudes are following with him on this journey, great multitudes. And Jesus, the Bible tells us, he turned and said unto them. And I want you to notice the next few verses here that he gives have to do with discipleship. In verse 26, if you notice the last part of verse 26, he says, he cannot be my disciple. And uh, the idea is, and what Jesus is talking about, what Jesus is teaching on, is reasons why people are not or cannot be his disciple. There in verse 26, as I already stated, the end of the verse says, he cannot be my disciple. If you notice there in uh, verse 27, the end of the verse there, the Bible says, cannot be my disciple. And then, of course, if you look at verse 33 there, the last part of the verse, the Bible says, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus gives these three different thoughts regarding discipleship. And and what Jesus teaches is very unpopular, as you're going to see here in a moment. And I want you to understand that what Jesus is doing is he's looking, he has turned to this crowd of people. The Bible calls them a great multitude. And Jesus is thinning out the crowd, is what he's doing. Uh, Jesus realizes that not everybody who is in the crowd, not everybody who is in the congregation is fully committed to him. And Jesus is looking for people that are faithful to him, not simply fascinated uh, with him. So Jesus begins to teach on this idea of discipleship and why it is that the average person in the crowd, the, uh, the average person sitting in the congregation, is not worthy and not able and uh, uh, unable to be a fully committed disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he really is thinning out the crowd. He is uh, trying to develop these individuals into committed Christians. And here's something that I think it's good for us to understand just by way of introduction. And it's good for even me to be reminded of this by the Lord Jesus Christ through this text. And it is this, that our goal is not and should not be to gather a crowd. When you uh, think about churches and church life today, uh, the, the goal of the average church is to gather as many people as possible, to gather a big crowd. And of course, we want our church to grow. And uh, the reason we want our church to grow is because the more people that we can, in, the, the more people that come, the more people that hear the preaching the Word of God and can be impacted, saved, discipled. We understand that. But understand this. Our goal is not a crowd. Our goal is a crowd that we can help develop into fully committed disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our goal is not just to reach people for the sake of reaching people. Uh, of course, if the goal is to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they might go to heaven. But then we want to bring them into church that we might help them become fully committed, fully engaged disciples. And what Jesus is doing when he looks at this crowd, he, he explains to them that they... Many of them are not fully engaged. Many of them are not faithful to him. Many are simply fascinated with Jesus, not faithful to Jesus. And he expresses to them that they should really take the time to count the cost regarding discipleship. I want you to notice there in verse 26, the Bible says, Jesus says, If any man come to me 
if any man come to me. Again, again the, the theme of this text is discipleship. He's talking about somebody becoming a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not salvation. Salvation is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is sanctification. Becoming a fully engaged follower, a disciple. He says, if any man come to me, and we're going we're gonna to look at these verses carefully here in a minute. I'm just going to read through them for now. He says, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, and whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We'll come back to those verses here in a minute. But I want you to notice here in verse 28, he says, for which of you, and this is the, the, the point that Jesus is making. He says, which of you intending, the word intending or intend means to, uh, to it, 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 the, the word intending means meaning to, or having a, uh, the will to, having a desire to do something. He says, which of you intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and here's our phrase, counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient, the word sufficient means whether he have enough to finish it. He says, look, who is going to start a building project and, and, and begin to build a tower and not sit down first and consider and count and reckon whether or not they have enough, they have sufficient to finish? You say, why would you want to do that? Here's why, verse 29, less happily, the word happily means by chance, he says, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him. That means they make fun of him. Why? Because he looks silly. He began to build something, but he did not take the time to plan. He did not take the time to consider whether he had enough money to finish the project. And the Bible says here, Jesus says that when he's not able to finish it, all that behold him begin to mock him. Verse 30 saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And Jesus is equating this to the Christian life. Again, not salvation, discipleship actually living practically the Christian life. And Jesus is saying, look, if you're going to be a follower of me, if you're going to be a disciple, you must count the cost and make sure that you're willing to pay the price, that you have made the choice that you're going to finish it. He says, otherwise, people will mock. And they will say, this man began to build and was not able to finish. By the way, this is why people quit on God all the time. This is why people begin down the road of discipleship, down the road of Christianity, again, not salvation, of walking the life of a Christian, being a follower of Jesus. They began to build and they were not able to finish. Something you'll learn if you end up being one of the people who actually counts the cost and decides to stay in this thing and live the Christian life, not for weeks and not for months and not for years, but for decades. The Christian life is measured by decades. Don't tell me how long you've been serving the Lord for the last 32 days. I want to know how long you've been serving the Lord for the last 32 years. And if you decide to become one of these disciples that's in it for the, the long run, that's going to get to the end of their life like the Apostle Paul and say, I finished my course you will find that people come and go. People constantly come and they go, they come and they go. You say, why is it that people quit on God? Why is it that people go back to their old habits, back to their old lifestyle, back to their old sin, back to the way they used to be? It is because of the fact that they began to build and never sat down to count the cost and consider what is it going to actually cost me to be a fully devoted, engaged disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. They did not count the cost, therefore they were not able to finish it. And people began to mock. And I'm just here to tell you, if you start walking down this path of saying, I'm going to be a Bible-believing, fundamental Baptist Christian, living for the Lord, reading the Bible, praying, living the separated life, hey, praise God for it. But just realize when you get down this road and then decide, oh, I should have counted the cost. Oh, I'm not willing to do this. And you quit. There will be those around you. There will be the co-workers and the neighbors and the family members who will say, I knew it wasn't real. I knew it was just a phase. I knew that you, I, I knew you weren't going to actually change anything. I knew it. Lest happily after he had laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish it. Notice Jesus gives another example in verse 31. In verses 
28 through 30, he gives the example of counting the costs before you begin to build. He says, which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? In verses 31 and 32, he talks about counting the cost before you go to war. He says, or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth? The word consult means to seek advice or counsel or information. He says, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with tens of thousands to meet him that cometh against him uh, with 20,000 or else while others, uh, while, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage. That word means uh, a messenger sent or uh, from an embassy or an ambassador and desireth conditions of peace. And it's interesting to me that when Jesus looks at this crowd of people following him and he says, I don't think you really understand what it means to be a follower of me. I don't think you really understand what it's going to cost you to be a follower and a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. I really think before you decide to go forward that you should take some time to count the cost, to consider what it will cost you. And then Jesus gives these two illustrations, one of building and one of fighting. It's interesting to me because that's really how you can uh, uh, divide the Christian life. You say, what is the Christian life? The Christian life is building and battling. We are building our lives. We are building our children's lives. We are building uh, 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 disciples. We are laboring together with God, building a, a church for God. But at the same time that we're building, if you're doing it right, you're also battling. It's a Christian fight. It's a Christian warfare. It's a spiritual warfare. So Jesus says, hey, you ought to count the cost before you start building. Lest happily after that he had laid the foundation, he's not able to finish it. He said, you ought to take some time and count the cost before you start battling. Unless you quit and surrender halfway through. So Jesus looks at this crowd and he says, you ought to really consider the cost. You ought to really consider the cost. And this morning, I am not the Lord Jesus Christ. And, then, and, and obviously, he's my Savior and he's my God. But as his messenger this morning, I would like to speak to this crowd here this morning and ask you to consider the cost of discipleship. Consider the cost of what it will actually cost you to be a fully engaged follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not trying to get you to quit or I'm not, I'm not trying to get you to leave, uh, but I am trying to get you to do what the Lord Jesus Christ was trying to get that crowd and to consider whether you're serious about this thing of serving Jesus. Jesus gives three areas in this speech he gives to this crowd. He highlights three different areas which keep someone from being a disciple. And he says, these are the areas that you will need to consider. These are the areas that you'll need consultation on. These are the areas that you'll need to count the cost to decide whether you are able to be a follower, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me quickly this morning give you these three areas as we consider this thought, counting the cost of discipleship. If you're taking notes, and I always encourage you to take notes, on the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to write down some things. If you've not bring in a note, brought a notebook or something to be able to take notes with. Number one this morning, I'd like you to consider the cost of unparalleled love. Consider the cost of unparalleled love. I want you to notice what Jesus says in verse 26. It's kind of a shocking verse. And Jesus will often, you'll notice through his sermons and through his preaching, that he will use shocking language. He will use hyperbole. He will use exaggerations in order to kind of get people's attention. And that's what he does here in verse 26 when he says, If any man come after me, Again, coming after me is deciding I'm going to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to follow the Lord. I'm going to be a disciple. He says, if any man come to me, notice what he says, and hate. He says, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he says, he cannot he cannot, he cannot, he's disqualified, he's not able to be my disciple. He says, if you come after me and you hate not father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters, 
You will realize that you began to build and you were unable to finish. You will realize that you began to fight and you were unable to win. You will realize that you failed to count the cost of discipleship. Now, what is it that Jesus could possibly be teaching here? Let me begin by just making something clear. Let me start by explaining what Jesus was not teaching. Jesus was not teaching that you need to start hating your family. I'll make that clear. I think it'll be clear as we look at portions of Scripture. But let me just say this. Go go to Matthew chapter 5 if you would. If you go backwards, you have Luke, Mark, Matthew, Matthew 5. Some of you are like, ah, man, I was going to make that my life verse. It's not possible that Jesus, in fact, it would be hypocritical of the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be contradictory of the Lord Jesus Christ to teach a husband to hate his wife when the Bible says, you go to Matthew, I'll read to you from Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. The Bible specifically commands husbands to love their wives. Titus 2.4, the Bible says this, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands. Not only does the Bible specifically teach husbands love your wives, but the Bible teaches that women should love their husbands. There's no way that Jesus is teaching you to hate your wife and hate your husband and hate your family. There's no way that he's teaching you to hate your father and your mother when there's a very clear command in Scripture, Exodus 20 and verse 12, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. In Ephesians, Paul says, Honor thy father and thy mother, for this is the first commandment with promise. I mean, this is one of the commandments that's in the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. And it's the uh, one of the commandments, the only commandment in the Big Ten, where God says, I've associated a promise and a blessing that if you fail to honor your father and your mother, God says, I will make sure that your health goes down the drain, and I will make sure that you do not live a long life. People often ask me, uh, what do you do about health? And, and you know, we're conscious uh, with health. My wife and I go on walks, and we started this new habit where we're uh, routine, where we stretch every morning together, and we go on walks. And my wife cooks, you know, of course, organic and, 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 and healthy food. But, you know, I always tell people, my, my greatest health, you know, concern is making sure that I honor my father and my mother. Because the Bible says honor your father and mother. And he says, hey, thy thy days may be long upon the earth. So how could it be that Jesus would teach to hate your father, hate your mother, when he commands you to honor your father and mother? And in fact, he says, if you don't, I'll kill you. How could it be that Jesus says to hate your wife when he tells husbands, love your wives, and then he tells husbands in 1 Peter, if you don't love your wife, I won't hear your prayers. How could it be that he's telling you, you're there in Matthew 5, 44, Notice what he says, Matthew 5, 44, but I say unto you, notice what Jesus says, but I say unto you, love your enemies. How could Jesus teach you to hate your father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters while also teaching you to love your enemies and bless them that curse you and do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you? I mean, he says, love your enemies. It's funny to me, sometimes you talk to some man who's struggling, loving his wife, and I'll say, well, the Bible says that you're supposed to love your wife. He says, I know the Bible says I can't. I'm supposed to love my wife, but I just can't love her. Well, the Bible says you're supposed to love your neighbors as yourself, and you're, she's your wife, but she's also uh, your neighbor. In fact, she's the closest neighbor you've got. You've got to love your wife. If you can't love her because God says to love your wives, you should at least love her because the Bible says to love your uh, neighbor. Oh, I can't love her as a neighbor either. Well, the Bible says to love your enemies. So at the very least, you can love your wife as an enemy. I mean, the point that I'm making is you're not going to get out of this. God says to love your wife, to love your husband, to love your parents and honor your parents. The Bible says to love your enemies. So here's the point that I'm making is Jesus is not teaching to hate your family. You say, well, what is it that Jesus is teaching? Well, keep your finger right there in Matthew 5. We're going to come back to it. And go with me, if you would, to the book of Genesis, Genesis 29. Genesis 29. First book in the Bible should be fairly easy to find, Genesis 29. 
Throughout the Bible, you'll find, and I'll just show you one example of this, that God will sometimes use this love, love comparison as a love-hate comparison. In fact, what he does is he uses this love much and love less comparison with a love and hate comparison. You say, what are you talking about? Jesus and the Bible, and this is what Jesus is doing, will often teach you that sometimes someone may love something so much that in comparison to that love, everything else looks like hate. Genesis 29, are you there? Let me give you one example of this. Genesis 29, verse 30. Genesis 29, 30. And he, this is Jacob, went in also unto Rachel. Remember, Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, got tricked into marrying Leah, ended up marrying both. The Bible says, and he went in also unto Rachel, after he was finally able to marry Rachel, who he actually wanted to marry. The Bible says, and he loved also Rachel. This was his second wife. But it was the wife that he actually wanted to marry. He got tricked into marrying Leah. Notice what the Bible says. And he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel. Notice what the Bible says. More than Leah. Okay, so did Jacob love Leah? He did love her. But he loved Rachel more than Leah. In fact, he loved Rachel so much more than Leah, the Bible tells us, if you finish the verse, and served with him yet seven other years. He served seven years for Rachel, got tricked into marrying Leah. Then he served another seven years for Rachel. And then within those seven years, he, he uh, the Bible says that the time just went, flew by because his love was so great for her. Here we're told that Rachel, he loved also Rachel more than Leah. Notice verse 31. And when the Lord saw that Leah was, notice what it says, hated. Now, did Jacob hate Leah? Jacob didn't hate Leah. He had children with Leah. He took care of Leah. I think he, he, he liked Leah. I mean, we see that he has affection for Leah throughout the Bible. But here the Bible says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And what I'm showing you is this, that in the Bible, God will often use these words to describe. It wasn't that he hated Leah. It's that he loved Rachel so much that his love for Rachel, in comparison for his love for Leah, you would think that he hated Leah. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated. This is the same idea that we see, go back to Matthew, if you would, Matthew chapter 10 this time. In Luke 14, when Jesus says, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and his wife and children and brethren and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. The parallel teaching to this in Matthew puts it this way. Matthew 10, 37. Notice what it says. Here is what Jesus was teaching. What was Jesus not teaching? He was not teaching that you need to hate your family. What is it that Jesus was teaching? Matthew 10, 37. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. See, Jesus was not teaching that you need to hate your family. I'm sure I've disappointed many of you. Jesus was teaching that your love for him should be so great that any other love in comparison would seem like hate. And here's all I'm telling you. And some of you need to count the costs. That your decisions to become a fully committed, fully engaged follower of the Lord Jesus Christ your choice to become a Bible-believing Christian that actually reads the Bible, learns the Bible, understands the Bible, applies the Bible, and actually lives the Bible out in your life. That decision will not cause you and should not cause you to hate your family. But that decision may cause you to make decisions in your life that your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers and your family members might look at. And you might have a mother. You might have a father. You might have a grown child that looks at you as you begin to make decisions in your life, changes in your life as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they might look at you and say, do you hate us? Do you hate us? We used to get drunk together. We used to get high together. We used to do, and now you're, you're not wanting to do the, do you hate us? And the answer would be, no, I do not hate you, but my love for Jesus surpasses any other love. 
My love for the Lord Jesus Christ, my love for the Savior is so strong and so pulling that any other love may look like hate in comparison. See, there's a cost to serving Jesus. You say, what is the cost? It is the cost of unparalleled love. It is the cost of saying, I love you, Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for giving me salvation. I give my heart to you. I give my life to you. And I will not allow any other love or relationship to come between my love for you. And it doesn't mean that I hate others. It doesn't mean that I, that I hate other relationships. But it may mean that if I have to make a choice, I will choose Jesus. And it may mean that my love for Jesus is so strong that any other love in comparison may look like hate. I like to sometimes look at hymns. Hymns, I feel like they help me understand certain truths from the Bible. And I, when, when I think of this passage, I think of this hymn, I just want to read the words to you. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. The words say this. I'm sorry, not, 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 not tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. That's a good one too, but let, let, me, let, me, let me read this one. 174, my Jesus, I love thee. When I think of this passage, this is, these words, they, when I was studying this passage, these words kept coming to my mind. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. I'll love thee in life. I will love thee in death and praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath and say when the death dew lies cold on my brow, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. And though you and I may sing this song and love this song, unfortunately, I believe that the average Christian does not mean the words of those songs. When we say, Jesus, I love thee, I love you more than anything. There is no unparalleled love. There is no love in my heart that will parallel to the love for you. And by the way, let me just say this. When you are fully in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, it'll make you a good husband. It'll make you a good wife. It'll make you a good father. And it'll make you a good mother. It'll make you a good son. It'll make you a good daughter. You can't love Jesus and not love those other individuals and be right in those other relationships. The, the relation with Jesus is not simply in this direction. The Bible says that we are to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. And when you do that, it results in a loving of thy neighbor as thyself. You cannot have one without the other. So there's a cost. A cost of discipleship. What is it? The cost of unparalleled love. I want you to notice, secondly, this morning, there's another cost that Jesus brings up. If you can make your way to Luke 14. Keep your place there in Matthew, if you would. Luke 14. Not only do we see the cost of unparalleled love, but I want you to notice that there's a second cost that Jesus wants us to consider before we begin down the road of discipleship. Before you start ordering the materials that you need for the building of the tower or ordering the weapons that you'll need for the fight that you're going to fight, he says, take some time to consider the cost of discipleship. You say, what is it? Number one, the cost of unparalleled love. Number two, the cost of unselfish denial. Notice Luke 14 and verse 26. He says, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and his sisters, and if I've not already proven to you that he's not teaching you to hate your family, he's just teaching you to love him so much that it may seem like you hate your family, this little phrase should prove that to you. He says, Yea, remember he's talking about hating, and his own life also. He says, If any man come to me and hate not his own life also, and Ephesians were told, and throughout the Bible we're told, that no man yet hated his own flesh. Everybody loves themselves. And here Jesus is saying, hey, you need to hate your own life also, or you cannot be my disciple. And then he expounds on that in verse 27. He says, and whosoever doth not bear his cross. What's a cross? A cross is an instrument of death. A cross is a tool that would be used to put people to death. 
to carry out the death penalty. We've romanticized the cross as Christians, and I'm not opposed to that necessarily. We sing about the cross, and we, we love the cross and what it represents. But you need to understand, when Jesus was speaking in Luke 14 to this uh, Jewish audience in the first century, when he said cross, they thought electric chair. When he said cross, they, they thought a gas chamber. To them, when they had witnessed the cross, that they had, that they had traveled uh, through the Roman Empire and maybe seen crosses up on the side of the road, those were not memorials. Those were not uh, uh, places where soldiers died and crosses were placed. Those were not places of worship like they are for you and I. When they wa- went, went down the road and they saw crosses along the road, there were people hanging on those crosses. There were people dying on those crosses. There were thieves and murderers and criminals that had, been, uh, uh, that had been given the death penalty, being put to death on those crosses. So when Jesus says, and whosoever doth not bear his cross, that would be just as intensifying, just as captivating, just as extreme as saying, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, discipleship will not only cost you unparalleled love, discipleship will cost you unselfish denial. To be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you must be willing to die to self. The crazy thing about being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is that you have to be willing to set up a cross and hang yourself on it. Paul says, I die daily. And the reason that the average person in the crowd, Jesus would say, cannot be a disciple, cannot be a fully committed, engaged follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is because we often are so unwilling to die. You've got to ask the question. If somebody says, I'm a disciple, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I I follow the Lord, I'm a Christian, I, I do Christian stuff. Okay, well, here's the question for you. When did you die? When did you die? Go to Romans chapter 6, if you would. Romans 6, you're there in Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans 6. You say, Pastor, what are you doing? Are you, are you trying to get us to be fully engaged disciples? No, I'm actually giving you reasons why you may want to consider not being a fully engaged disciple. Say, why? Same, well, first of all, it's not me, it's Jesus. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. But like Jesus, I've grown kind of weary of seeing people make it to the halfway mark and then quit. I'd rather you just count the cost. I'd rather you just decide, hey, am I fully committed to this thing of following Jesus? You say, well, what does this mean to die to self? What does it mean to, to, to bear your cross? Let me give you three thoughts quickly. Romans 6, if you would. Look at verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man, what's your old man? That's your old life, your old lifestyle, your old manner of life, your old habits, your old addictions. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. You say, what does it mean to die to yourself? Because we can, we can say, oh, we ought to die to self, and you ought to die, you know, I die daily, and I'm crucified with Christ, and all these things. But what does that actually practically mean? Here's what it means. Dying to self means dying to your old sinful lifestyle. Amen. To your old man. To your old friend, you said, do I have to hate my friends? No, they'll start hating you. You don't have to, look, just become a Bible-believing Christian, they'll separate from you. And they'll make statements like this, why do you hate us? And you'll say, I don't hate you, I just love Jesus. Dying to self means dying to your sinful lifestyle. Let me give you another one, go to Galatians 5, you're there in Romans, past 1st, 2nd Corinthians, into Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, Romans 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, dying to self, not only does it mean dying to your simple lifestyle, but dying to self means dying to self-gratifying desires. Galatians 5, 24, notice what it says, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. You say, Pastor, you don't understand. There are things that my, uh, my, my, my flesh desires. There are lusts and affections. There are things that my flesh wants. Well, unless you're willing to crucify those things, you might want to count the cost because that is the cost of discipleship. Dying to self means dying to your sinful lifestyle. Dying to self means dying to your self-gratifying desires, which your self-gratifying desires, by the way, are what led you into your sinful lifestyle. 
Go to Galatians 6, look at verse 14. Galatians 6 and verse 14. Dying to self means dying to your secular influences. Which probably led you into your self-gratifying desires, which probably led you into your sinful lifestyle. See, it, it all comes back around. You say, I got I to gotta be willing to die to my secular influences? What do you mean by that? I mean your friends. Your friends that are influencing you in the wrong direction. I'm talking about your siblings, your brother, your sister, your uncle, your aunt, that are all influencing you in the wrong direction. You say, am I supposed to walk away from them? That's, that's my family. That's my family. Can I really walk away from them? Hey, Jesus said, if you don't hate father and mother and sister and brother, you cannot be my disciple. Galatians 6.14, Paul said, But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. Don't miss it. By whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. And here's all I'm telling you. is if you, if you skip church to watch the Super Bowl, the world is not crucified unto you. If you skip church to watch the Emmys, the world is not crucified unto you. If you put worldly, secular influences before God, you can't honestly say, the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. That's what a disciple says. That's what a fully committed, engaged follower of the Lord Jesus Christ says. And the average person in the crowd cannot say that. See, you have to die to self. If Christ is to live through you. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. He said, in the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So we see the cost of discipleship. You got to count the cost. You say, what is it? Well, Jesus tells us it's the cost of unparalleled love. Jesus tells us it is the cost of unselfish denial. Let me give you a third one this morning. We'll finish up. Go back to Luke chapter 14, if you would, verse 33. You got to count the cost. The cost of unparalleled love. I cannot love anyone more than Jesus. You say, I love things, I love people more than Jesus. Then you may be saved. I hope you're saved. But you're not a disciple. You cannot love yourself. You have to be willing to put yourself on a cross. You say, well, there's some things I'm just not willing to give up. Well, you may be saved. I hope you're saved, but you're not a disciple. And then thirdly this morning, there's the cost of unmitigated sacrifice. Notice Luke 14 and verse 33. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all. I love how Jesus puts this. He says that forsaketh not all, that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, there should be no relationship. And then he lists the people that are normally closest to you in a relationship. Your father, your mother, your sister, your brother. He, he, he says, there should be no relationship that you're willing to, to take over me. Then he says, you should not be willing to take yourself. You see, he has to do it in this order. Because for some of you, if Jesus said, walk away from your father, walk away from your mother, you'd be like, happy to. So then he says, okay, well, also, kill yourself. Put yourself on the cross. Die daily. Become a living sacrifice. Well, I don't know about that. I really love myself. He says, I know. But if you were to pass that test and say, okay, no, I'm willing to sacrifice every relationship, and I'm even willing to sacrifice myself, then Jesus says, okay, well, here's what's left. Forsake everything else. Whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, you have to be willing to walk away from it all. Now, please understand this. Please, please get this. Jesus does not tell you that you need to walk away from it all to be a disciple. But he does tell you that you have to be willing to walk away from it all to be a disciple. Unmitigated sacrifice. That word unmitigated means not mitigated, meaning not softened, not lessened unqualified, absolute, without limits. No disclaimers. No, no, you're not going to put any borders or limits and say, well, Jesus, I'm willing to serve you this far. I'm willing to serve you as long as it costs me this. 
If it costs me more than this, I'm not willing to serve. He said, no, 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 that's not how it works. He said, it's unmitigated. He said, you need to be willing to forsake it all. You need to be willing to leave it all. You need to be willing to be done with it all. You say, why? Go, go back to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6 and verse 24. Matthew 6, 24. You say, why, why, do I have to, why do I have to be willing to forsake everything to be a follower of Jesus? Here's why. Because when you become a follower of Jesus, Jesus becomes your master. And the Bible says, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, no man can serve two masters. For either, don't, don't miss it. Remember our hate-love uh, comparison? For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Notice the love-hate comparison right there. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. You say, what's mammon? Mammon is material goods, material wealth, stuff, things, the things that money can buy you. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, hey, if you're going to be my disciple, it's going to cost you unparalleled love. You've got to love me more than you love anything else. It's going to cost you unselfish denial. You're going to have to be willing to deny yourself, take up the cross and follow me. He said it's going to cost you unmitigated sacrifice. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. God's not again. Look, I'm not telling you that God wants you to, 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 to get rid of everything or sell everything. God is not asking you to do that. God does ask some people to do that. God is not asking you to do that necessarily, unless, unless he is. You know, it's between you and God. What I'm telling you is that what God wants to know is, are you willing to? Go to Luke 18, if you would, Luke 18. I'm preaching out of Luke 14. We've not yet made it to Luke 18. We'll, when we get there, we will deal with the story and its entirety, but I just want to point something out for you as an example. You see this sometimes throughout the Gospels, Luke 18, 22. Now, when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, yet lackest thou one thing. This is a man who wants to follow Jesus, and he's giving Jesus all the right answers. And Jesus says, okay, he's wrong, but he's giving Jesus all the right answers. And Jesus says, okay, well then, if that's the case, then you're only lacking one thing, yet lackest thou one thing. What is it? Sell all that thou, house, that, thou, that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven. That's what he says. And come follow me. And come follow me. You say, well, this is absurd. Jesus would never ask me to. I was just reading a, a story this week about a missionary. A young man lived, I don't know, maybe 100 years ago was born into a very wealthy family and the inheritor of, 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 of what, the equivalent of millions and billions of dollars today. Lived in London. Felt the call of God to go to the mission field. Went to China. Decided that it was improper for a multi-billion dollar heir to go into the work of God and chose to give away all of his money and to rely on the Lord Jesus Christ upon the mission field. I'm just here to tell you that for some people, the question might be asked, are you willing, are you willing to give it all up? I've learned in ministry, you young guys that want to go into ministry, take this however you want to take it. I'll just be honest with you. I have found in ministry, I'm talking about full-time Christian ministry, pastors, deacons, evangelists, the guy that just cannot keep his grip out of the secular work world, I've just found that God does not bless that. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong for people to work a secular job. For the first three years of this ministry, I worked a secular job because I had to. But I didn't work a secular job because I wanted to live in a fancy house. I worked a secular job because I wanted to feed my family. And as soon as the ministry allowed me to have the finances to forsake all, I forsook all. You say, you don't live in a fancy house. I know. You don't drive nice vehicles. I know. You're not, you don't, you're, you're not very impressive. The things you own are not very impressive. I know. And I'm not saying that you need to be willing. I am saying for you that want to go into the ministry, you need to be willing. You, in fact, you probably need to. It won't hurt you to sell everything you have and go follow Jesus. You know, in, in, in the secular world, they call it burning the bridges. My wife and I, we often joke about the fact that as far as ministry is concerned for Pastor Roger Jimenez, I have become unemployable. 
You say, why does the ministry have to work? I, you, you're laughing, but I'm, I'm being serious. You think I can put an application somewhere and get hired? You think they can run my name through Google and, and I'd get hired? It's called burning your bridges. It's called burning the ships. It's saying, look, we've crossed the line. There's no, there's point of no return. This is either going to work, she's going to make it work, or we're going to, we're going to go down with the ship. There's no other option. And I'm just telling you that it seems like God will often bless unmitigated sacrifice. Sacrifice that puts no limits, puts no borders. You don't come to God trying to make some a contract and say, well, I'm willing to do this if you're willing to do this. No, I'm willing to serve God, period. And there's no other qualification. There's no other qualifier. It just is what it is. But you know why the average person will never get there? Luke 18, 23, look at it. And when he heard this, when he heard what? Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And when he heard this, he was very, notice the word, very sorrowful. Why was he very sorrowful? For he was very rich. Say, Pastor, are you telling us you need to sell, we need to sell everything and give it to the work of God? I'm not telling you that. If you feel led to the Lord of that, make sure it goes to the Verity Baptist Church. But <laughs> I'm not telling you that. What I am telling you is that if in your heart of hearts, you know that if Jesus, if God were to ask you to sell it all and follow him, would you be willing to do it or would you be very sorrowful because you're very rich? Luke 5, if you would. Luke 5, 11. Luke 5, 11. Luke 5, 11, and when they... Who's the they? The they is some of the most famous followers and disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter, James, and John. I mean, the most famous disciples of Christ are the 12. And of the 12, the most famous of the, of the 12 are the three, Peter, James, and John. That's the they is being referred to here in Luke 5.11. And when they had brought their ships to land. By the way, in the context here, they just had the greatest catch of their lives. They just made the most money they'd ever made in their entire lives. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. I'm just here to tell you something. You may not be a disciple. You may just be in the crowd. I'm not mad at you. There are times that I feel like I'm in the crowd and I'm not doing a good job of following Jesus. But if you and I are going to do this, we may want to count the cost. Say, what's the cost? Unparalleled love. What's the cost? Unselfish denial. What's the cost? Unmitigated. Sacrifice. Go back to Luke chapter 14 and we'll finish up our passage here. In verses 34 and 35, Jesus brings up salt. This is similar to other passages of the gospel and it seems a little random, but it's connected to this idea of counting the cost. I'll quickly explain these verses and be done. Verse 34. He says, salt is good, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? Please understand that little statement there. He says salt is good. But the purpose of salt is to salt things. And if the salt have lost its savor, he's saying, if the salt have lost its savor, where is the salt going to get salt from? That's similar to what he said earlier in the, in, in the book of Luke. We, we preached the whole sermon when he says, if the light that is in you be darkness, how great is that darkness? And what he's saying is, the, 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 the purpose of a disciple is to be the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savor, then there's, we're all men most miserable. There's no hope. Verse 35, it is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. And then he says this, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. He said, what is it that Jesus is saying in these two verses? Here's what he's saying. The disciple is useful to Jesus. The disciple is useful to his master 
only to the extent in which he is willing to forsake others, forsake self, and forsake things. Salt is only good when it has not lost its savor. And the Christian who is not willing to forsake others, the first Christian who is not willing to forsake self, the Christian who is not willing to forsake things, has lost his savor. He says, salt is good. But if the salt has lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. The disciple is useful to his master to the extent that he is willing to forsake others, self, and things. And the disciple, here's what he's saying. Please understand this. Jesus is on his road to Jerusalem. A great multitude is following him, the Bible tells us. And Jesus, at some point, turns around, addresses the crowd, and says, you know what the problem with some of you is? You're fascinated with me, but you're not faithful to me. You're curious about the miracles. You're curious about the parables. You're curious about casting out demons, but you're not actually fully committed. He says, let me talk to you about counting the costs. And he speaks to them about unparalleled love. And he speaks to them about unselfish denial. And he speaks to them about unmitigated sacrifice. And then he ends his little talk by saying, the disciple is useless to the master who is unwilling to forsake others, self, and things. So here's a question for you. Are you willing to forsake other relationships? I'm, I'm not saying you should hate your friends and family and neighbors. I am saying this. I'm not saying you should hate your husband or your wife, your father or your mother. I am saying this. If you have to make a choice between Jesus and your husband, Jesus and your wife, Jesus and your father, Jesus and your mother, Jesus and your sister, Jesus and your brother, who would you choose? You might want to count the cost. If you had to choose between Jesus and your pet sin, who would you choose? You might want to count the cost. If you had to choose between Jesus and the comforts of life, the things that you own, do you honestly, and look, God is not against you having stuff, but you've got to ask the question, do you own stuff or does stuff own you? You may want to count the costs. Because the disciple is useful to the master to the extent that he's willing to forsake others, self, and things. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. I realize it's heavy. And it's what you taught that crowd in the first century. And it's what you would have this crowd to learn in this century. Lord, I pray you'd help us to count the costs. Lord, I, I pray that people would not walk out of here saying, well, I better quit because I'm not willing. But I pray that people would walk out of here saying, I'm going to become willing. I'm going to become willing, fully committed, fully engaged, burning the ships, burning the bridges, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be a church, not a crowd, but a church of disciples. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We're now, Brother Matt, come up and lead us in a final song. Before he does that, let me remind you of a couple of things. First of all, don't forget that we have our harvest party coming up on October 31st, and we have a sign-up sheet in the foyer. Uh, for cornbread and desserts, if you'd like to go by there. And